Pilate went back out again and said to them, I present him to you, but I want you to know that I don't find him guilty of any crime. Just then Jesus came out wearing the thorn crown and the purple robe. Pilate says, here he is, the man. When the high priest and the police saw him, they shouted in a frenzy, Crucify! Crucify! And Pilate told him, You take him! You crucify him! I find nothing wrong with him. And Jesus answered, or the Jews answered, You see, we have a law, and by that law he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he became even more scared. He went back into the palace and said to Jesus, Where did you come from? Jesus gave no Pilate said, you won't talk? Don't you know that I have the authority to pardon you and the authority to crucify you? Jesus said, you haven't a shred of authority. You haven't a shred of authority over me except what was given you from heaven. That's why the one who betrayed me to you has committed a far greater fault. And at this, Pilate tried his best to pardon him. But the Jews shouted him down, If you pardon this man, you're no friend of Caesar's. Anyone setting himself up as a king defies Caesar. When Pilate heard those words, he led Jesus outside. He sat down at the judgment seat in the era-designated stone court, and um, it was the preparation day for Passover. The hour was noon. And Pilate said to the Jews, here's your king. And they shouted back, kill him. Kill him, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said, am I to crucify your king? And the high priests said, we have no king except Pilate caved into their demand, and he turned him over to be crucified. They took Jesus away, and carrying his cross, Jesus went out to the place called Skull Hill, Golgotha, where they crucified him, and with him, two others, one on each side, Jesus in the middle. Pilate wrote a sign and had it placed on the cross. It read, Jesus, the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the sign because the place where Jesus was crucified was right next to the city. It was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. The Jewish high priest objected. Don't write, they said to Pilate, the king of the Jews. Make it this man said he was king of the Jews. Pilate said, what I've written, I've written. When they crucified him, the Roman soldiers took his clothes and divided them up four ways. To each a soldier a, a fourth. His robe was seamless, a single piece of weaving. So they said to each other, let's not tear it up. Let's throw dice to see who gets it. This confirmed the scripture that said, they divided my clothes among them and threw dice for my coat. See, the soldiers validated the scriptures. Well, the soldiers were looking after themselves. Jesus' mother, his aunt, uh, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and, and Mary Magdalene stood at the foot of the cross. Jesus saw his mother. And the disciple he loved standing there. 
And he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. Then to the disciple, he said, Here is your mother. And from that moment, the disciple accepted her as his own mother. Jesus, seeing that everything had been completed so that the scripture record might also be complete, said, I'm thirsty. A jug of sour wine was standing by. Someone put a sponge soaked with wine on a, on a javelin and, and lifted it to his mouth. And after he took the wine, Jesus said, it's done, complete. And bowing his head, he offered up his spirit. The, the word king and uh, the word Israel have an interesting history. Um, our house church, uh, over the past year or so, have been working through 1 Samuel in the Bible. It's this book of the Old Testament that gives the narrative history of when the nation of Israel, this nation that was supposed to be set apart in the world, this nation that was supposed to be of a people that were blessed to be a blessing, um, this is how they came to have a king. The nation of Israel desired a king, and get this, so that they could be like everybody else. And God warned them what human kings are like. People refused, though, and they said, no, no. We want a king, we want to have a king over us so that we can be like all the other nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and, and fight our battles. <laughs> human kings would ultimately fail them. It was the divine king that they should have placed their trust in, but they didn't get that now. And before our house church gets to the actual king narratives of Saul and David and the rest, um, what we wanted to do for our Lent study for house church was kind of use the book of Judges as a stepping stone back to try to get some, some underlying principles of this topic of sin. See, it, it seems like that sin is the thing that puts distance between us and God. That's the problem. Because the issue of a king is fascinating. Because God told the people, you don't need a king, you, you have me. But the last line of the book of Judges, the book that comes before Samuel's narrative, before uh, yeah, for the narrative of 1 Samuel, says that the last line of Judges says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And we talked about this. We talked about this idea. We, we used this um, sermon series by a, a preacher named Andy Stanley. A lot of you might have heard of him. Um, he preached this sermon uh, called Right in the Eye, based on this text. And he said that, you know, there's a lie that says that we tell ourselves especially maybe in America, that we can do what we want, when we want, with whomever we want, and as long as we tell ourselves that nobody's going to get hurt, it'll be all right. We can do what we want and when we want. We can create our own moral boundaries. But what we found as we kind of even went further back into the story, and we tried to look at the foundational scriptures for sin, this, this sin narrative that takes place between Genesis 3 and Genesis 11, 
is that there are several different dimensions worth noting. The first that we find maybe in the story of Adam and Eve is that sin has a very vertical dimension. That there is something very real about God giving us a law, God giving us a rule, and we create our own moral boundaries. We impose our own moral structures on that law and say, no, God, we can do it better ourselves. And it begins with such simplicity. That was the thing that, that we noticed when we were, were in that story in Genesis 3 of Adam and Eve and the fruit and the tree, was that it was just a simple, simple rule of do not eat this fruit. And before we get to, to murder and adultery and all that other, and war, just this simple, simple law, don't eat the fruit from this tree. Well, why not? You need to know. Don't eat the fruit from this tree. And all of creation is yours. And then there's that subtle whisper of the serpent that is more crafty. He says, did God really say? And Eve said, oh, yeah, yeah, we're not, we're not supposed to eat um, of any fruit of the tree because uh, God says we're going to die. Surely you won't die. And Eve says, I think I will die, and don't call me Shirley. <laughs> Wanted to use that quote. Anyway. <laughs> Surely you won't die. And they buy into it. And they eat the fruit. And they break God's law. And they make their own moral boundaries. And then the next story creates another dimension. It creates a horizontal dimension, because the truth is that we cannot do what we want when we want with whomever we want and not hurt other people. You can't do it. You can't break God's rules for you without hurting not only other people, but without hurting the ones you love. Um, I have a very uh, a, a personal story of this. When I was, when I was a kid, uh, you might have had... Um, story, you might have had rules in your home of don't throw toys, you know, or at least don't throw the toys that you're not supposed to throw. Um, well, I, I disobeyed the vertical rule of, from my parents, you know, don't throw toys, and I chucked a bowling pin at my brother's face, and I have this image just like drilled into my head of my brothers, like, standing there, and, like, the bowling pin is, and then all of a sudden he just, I have that in my head of just that blood splat. It's probably not even real. He probably didn't actually bleed that much. I will, if he was here, he could actually show you the scar. But see, what I found out was that I couldn't break that vertical rule without breaking the horizontal rule. There is an intimate relationship between the vertical and the horizontal. And what we find out after that, those very kind of personal dimensions to the story, is that things snowball pretty quickly. You saw the, the Noah movie that came out? I didn't see it yet. But I, some people tell me it's, it's fantastic, so I want to see it too. But, but that's the fascinating thing. Here we have 
um, the vertical dimension, we have, we have Adam and Eve, you know, breaking this little tiny rule. And then the next story, what do we get? Murder in Cain and Abel. And then you get just such widespread, horrendous sin that God has decided he's going to wipe out everything but what? Like eight people. It just snowballs out of control. And it snowballs faster than we ever could comprehend. And not only that, it gets a very systematic sin. It, it gets into things, and it gets into structures, and it gets into generations in ways that we never really anticipate. Um, I love the Lord of the Rings. We got any Lord of the Rings fans in here? So I tried to... <laughs> I tried to give this... Um, um, analogy when we were doing this in our house church and nobody got it because Mark wasn't there that night right we, we talked about the Tower of Babel and this idea of mankind or a society of mankind a city of mankind saying we're gonna build this structure and it's gonna reach to the heavens and it reminded me of of Isengod and Rohan and Gondor and what those cities were supposed to be to Middle-earth. What the king was supposed to be doing in Gondor, but there was a steward that didn't like, you know, that wanted to kind of deny the return of the king. And then there was Saruman, who, who bought into the lie that he could like create. See, Kara's following along. He bought into the lie that he could create his own little society and use the evil one's power, and Rohan was, you know, possessed by Saruman, and, and it, it created a very structural sin. And then also, it creates kind of a, a generational sin. Um, I think of, uh, uh, we have a, a history club that meets on the uh, second Fridays of every month, and we just finished studying the American Revolution. And one of the things that, that surprised me, or not surprised me, but one of the things that was really fascinating and tragic was when you study the topic of American slavery, of how generational that was. You might just say, like, oh, Thomas Jefferson, he writes, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You write those laws, obviously, slavery is not going to stand. Obviously, we should get rid of this thing right now, right? No, because of generational sin. It didn't make sense for them to just wave it away because it was weird how one generation just did what the previous generation thought was common sense. As horrible as that was, and there was so much debate at the time, but it just snowballed out of control. So you get that vertical dimension. You have the horizontal dimension. You have things snowballing out of control towards the systematic. And you have what theologians call the problem of total depravity, or as someone would, uh, some others would call radical corruption. And this is where our text for Romans comes in. See, Israel, as we said before, Israel was supposed to be God's rescue mission for the world. And 
we've been studying through Romans 9 through 11, which I will freely admit blows my mind, and I am not smart enough to (laughs) navigate this with, well, I have a lot more studying to do, but what's interesting about it is our text for tonight is Paul, towards the end, after he does these this um, talk about how Israel connects with God's ultimate plan. He says, I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, A deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them. And here's the point. When I take away their sin. Sin is the thing that puts distance between us and a holy God. Sin is the problem. And you may be thinking that this paints a picture of of just a world drenched in sin. You'd be right. And that brings us back. How are we going to navigate through this much sin? When sin has these kinds of dimensions, that it's not just don't eat the apple or don't eat the fruit from the tree anymore. It's things that are gotten into what seems to be every bit of our soul. That brings us back to the divine plan. That brings us back to the king that is needed to not only be Lord, but also Savior. The one who will put the world to rights. The one who has an intimate knowledge of the personal, the relational, the widespread and the systematic who knows the answer. The answer is that the cross is the only way. The reality of our king, the reality of the king that really matters, the one and true king, is the cross. Before we can talk about religion, before we can talk about doctrine, before we can get into the books, before we can give structure to whatever it is that Jesus is calling us to do, we have to do business with the cross. Turn to uh, Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 8. Watch out that no one takes you captive. See, there's a lot of so-called philosophy out there. This is Paul writing. Hollow trickery, human tradition, the elements of the world, none of it is in line with the king. In him, you see, all the full measure of divinity has taken up bodily residence. What's more, you are fulfilled in him since he's the head of all rule and authority. Skipping down a bit, he says, Though you were dead in legal offenses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with Jesus. 
forgiving all of our offenses. He blotted out the handwriting that was against us, opposing us with its legal demands. He took it right out of the way by nailing it to the cross. He stripped rulers and authorities of their armor and displayed them contemptuously to public view, celebrating his triumph over him. The empty philosophy of this world looks at the crucifixion and hears words like defeat. The empty philosophy of man hears words like sorrow, and we think of words like tragedy. And those things, those feelings aren't completely uncalled for. But for Paul, the reality of the crucifixion inspires words like rule, authority, and triumph. See, Sunday's coming. Let's give it away. Resurrection's coming. New life is coming. New creation is coming. Jesus has come to put the world to rights. But the truth is that if you choose to follow Jesus out of the empty tomb and into new life, you must first do business with the cross. Paul knows that the king's cross is on the path to the empty tomb. Or maybe we could go to, oh, I don't know, Philippians. You see, there are seven people who, have, who behave as enemies of the cross, of the Messiah. I told you about them often enough, and now I'm weeping as I say it again. They are on the road to destruction. They worship their stomachs, and they find glory in their own shame. All they ever think about is what's on the earth. But we, we are citizens of heaven, you see. We're eagerly waiting for the Savior, the Lord, King Jesus, who's going to come from heaven. Our present body is a shabby old thing, but he's going to transform it so that it's just like his glorious body. And he's going to do this by the power which makes him able to bring everything into line under his authority. Now, we, we studied this last week in The Edge, and I gave Kara and Rachel like 30 seconds to give me like their wisdom about that, and they wanted to know if they could maybe share just a few things with you guys in relation to that text. So I was wondering, do you guys have anything that like stuck out to you that you said, I gotta say it? What do you think it is about? What's that? It sounds like Sunday again? Okay. That was the main point. So, so rather than being citizens of the world, we're citizens of heaven. It's like we should seek first God's kingdom. Um, now, that line, enemies of the cross, really strikes me. Because you might be thinking here, now you might be here tonight, and you might be thinking like, you know, I, I don't know where I am with this faith business, 
you know, the singing the songs and the praying the prayers, but, but far be it for me to call myself an enemy of the cross. That sounds rather dramatic. Well, I, you know, I don't believe I'm behaving as an enemy of the cross. I'm just living my life. Perhaps you are. Perhaps you're not an enemy of the cross. But I would ask you to consider what role Jesus plays in your life. Who is Jesus to you? Who do you say Jesus is? You know, you might ask yourself, am I a citizen of this earth? Am I simply a citizen of this earth? Or am I seeking first his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven? Am I living in such a way that is consumed with the philosophy of this world? Am I living in such a way that is consumed with how I can achieve, how I can achieve my goals? How I could be an individual? How I could do what I want, when I want, with whomever I want, as long as nobody gets hurt, right? No, God says. You can't. My kingdom is about love and joy, peace, patience, kindness and goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. When you attempt to bypass the cross and find your own way to Easter, meaning find your own way to life, when you operate your life on your own terms, you will continue to break God's laws, you will continue to hurt other people, and you will contribute your own sin to a selfish kingdom of your own making in a way that will only But when we follow King Jesus as the way, the truth, the life, when we do business with the cross as an essential part of the story, when we're citizens of God's kingdom, we begin to see that his upside-down kingdom is a radical revolution that shines a light on all which is unholy. And it doesn't end there. When we lay our lives at the foot of the cross, we're welcomed into new life. And we have a God who's not distant and obscure. Rather, we have a God who has taken up residence with us. We have one who loves us so much that he died for our sins, and he calls us citizens of his kingdom. See, I don't think it's an accident that any of you are here tonight. If all of this is new to you, then you need to know. You need to know something. You need to know that God's kingdom is real, and it's at hand. You need to know that sin puts distance between us and God, and that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for your sins and mine. He welcomes you into new life. But I'm here to tell you that to begin walking on the path of righteousness, you must first kneel at the cross. You must first die to self. Only then will you experience new creation and eternal life. If all this is not new to you, then I think that Good Friday is an opportunity each year for us to reevaluate where the cross fits into our story. I ask you to redefine these words like triumph and glory. Redefine the word kingdom with a king that dies on the cross. The cross is an essential part 
So what would be the role of the church? What would the role of the church today be if all Jesus followers remembered to make the cross as an essential part of that kingdom? What if we looked at Jesus crucified, not just as, the, not just as a sacrificial lamb, but what if we actually saw the cross as the place of a triumphant king? We're going to take communion in a few minutes. Before we read the Nicene Creed, I wanted to tell you that our communion table at New Hope is an open table. And we invite all those who call upon the name of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior to come forward. But if you don't worship Jesus as King, we want you to know that we love you. And you shouldn't feel obligated to participate. But if you do worship Jesus as King, please come forward and make the cross a part of your story. The bread is unleavened, the red, uh, the red is wine, and the white is grape juice. And they'll please stand and join as churches throughout the centuries have done in the reading of the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come.